Welcome to episode 118. Today, Dr. Andrea de Capua joins us to talk about what every teacher needs to know about working with SLIFE. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. If you work with life, then you must know the work of Dr. Andrea de Capra and her colleagues. This was an informative conversation about how SLIFE see the world and how that affects the engagement in formalized schooling. Please stay to the very end of the podcast as Dr. de Capra gives us examples of what project-based learning can look like and how it can bring together what SLIFE need while still remaining relevant to them. Now, on to today's podcast. It's a privilege to introduce you to Dr. Andrea de Capua. She's the co-author of two books about SLIFE students, one with Dr. Helene Marshall, which is about uh, called Meeting the Needs of SLIFE, and her own book, SLIFE, What Every Teacher Needs to Know. So. It's an honor and privilege to host you. Welcome, Dr. DeCapua. Thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of your programs and your podcasts. It really is a privilege to share with you and with the audience. Um, so what, what can I tell you? What can I answer that has not already been answered? Or... <laughs> and if, it's, it's re, uh, if you have to retell something, it's not a problem because we need to hear it in multiple ways, in multiple perspectives, okay. right? Okay. So let's start with the first question. How, please share a story of when you worked with this life and how that story has stayed with you or shaped your practice. I, I, when you sent me that question, I've, I've been thinking about that a lot. And the more I thought about it, the more I felt like I couldn't tell you one single story. And there's a reason for that. When I do my presentations, my workshops or whatever, I usually start with an optical illusion, you know, where you can look at something and see it from different ways. And yeah. so, for example, um, you look at a picture, is it an old woman or a young lady? for example. I mean, that's a one, that's, and there are many, many others, and I vary them. Because what my idea is, it's sort of a, it's a metaphor for my work, because we can look at what we think is concrete and absolute and a reality, but it's only one perspective. And our prior learning experiences in a sociocultural setting, our language, everything shapes how we interpret that reality or that and what our perspective is. And even though I have all known this, I've been involved in intercultural communication, cross-cultural communication for many, many years, I am still a part of and um, live in my paradigm of formal education, my world. And so I have a lot of assumptions. And even if I keep struggling to overcome my assumptions and my preconceptions, and every and I'm, this constantly happens when I'm working with life because there's always something that I said, oh, oh, this is a whole different worldview. This is a different way of interacting and understanding the world. So I want to share. I'm going to share different stories, and and I'll keep coming back to different stories. But one of the ones I'm going to start with um, is uh, my worldview. Our worldview as educators is literacy, and we can't conceive of a world without literacy. And I know when I do these workshops and I talk to people, say, well, I don't like to read. I said, it has nothing to do with liking to read. Our world is the literate world. Even though we have Google Maps or MapQuest or whatever, we still read the street signs. You know, we still try to find our way in an expressway. You still look at the ingredients or you do something. You're always reading even though you don't think you are. And certainly in school, 
it's reading and writing. But, um, and so when we encounter Slife, who may not have, you know, not all Slife are not, not literate, right? They, many, uh, <laughs> but who may not have literacy as we expect, let's put it that way. You know, we'd see them through a deficit um, lens. We said, oh, those poor people, or how can that possibly be? Because we're, we're evaluating them through our, our lens, our perspective. And we see them as, oh, that poor person, oh, how hard, terrible. But something that was very eye-opening for me, I was um, at a school one time, and there were quite a number of life, and there, was, there were a couple of students um, who had, you know, really didn't have uh, 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 reading and writing skills. They weren't very, very literate. And one of them, they were, we were sitting around like in the cafeteria informally, I was kind of at another table, but next near them. And one was, I knew, and I speak Spanish, so I knew what he was saying, and I could hear what they were saying. And he started to tell a story. But it was not like a story of my life, but it was a story kind of like a legend or myth, or it was a story. And, and a lot of the other kids knew exactly what he was talking about, and so they would kind of chime in appropriately. And this went on for like 15, 20 minutes, and everybody was silent except where they were supposed to chime in. And I'm thinking, this is a kid who never could say anything in class or could participate. I can't tell a story like that. I mean, I need to read the story to my children, right? I have to read the story, no matter how many times I have read that story, I need to go to the written word. And it kind of struck home for me that so often those who are, whose world is that of orality, they may not, you know, orality, where the oral is more important, they have amazing memories. I, I cannot go to the grocery store without a written grocery list. Thank God now we have smartphones because I don't always forget my list, but inevitably, if it's not written, I don't remember it. And I can, and even, you know, I can't do a workshop or a presentation without having spending many hours reading and writing and preparing for it. That's not how my mind works. That's not how it has been trained. And so why am I looking at some, at life through a deficit lens rather than saying they come from a different world. They have assets that I do not have. And that's another perspective to say, let's look at the world from the, the, from the oral perspective. So that's, that was just one story. And I don't know if you want me to tell more stories or kind of embed them. Yes, you more can definitely. Stories. You can embed them as, as you okay. go along. Right? I think um, this is so, by the way, as you're speaking, I'm like, yes, this is another Dr. Helene Marshall because you're just <laughs> flowing through. Uh -huh. right? like, I love it. I love when you go off and talk for a long time, which is wonderful. I think after about recording about a hundred podcasts, that is the single uh, red, red thread that goes throughout all the podcasts. It's about like, shifting from a deficit perspective to an assets-based perspective. And now you're really shifting it to orality. And you're saying orality is not a lower form of literacy, right? And when we look at cultures who don't have codified written language, we look down on them. We can possibly look down and say, oh no, I'm sorry, this is a, a lesser form of, or un, yet not as developed culture. Right, mm -hmm. but it's like, oh no, they just developed the culture in a different way, right? And so when we change the way we see our students, we change the way we teach them. And so maybe if we see orality as a value, we'll maybe incorporate it more. So I'd like to just kind of expand on that a little bit is because not all life come from cultures that are oral. They themselves are oral. So for example, they may come from a culture where there's a strong written tradition and there is a lot, but they themselves have not had access to that reading and writing. So for many reasons, it can be socioeconomic, it can be cultural, it can be um, war, whatever. So they have a concept of what, it, what reading and writing are and they, have a, they see it as a high value, but others may come from cultures that are not written and they see writing as something that belongs to something else. So there's a lot of perspectives um, on what is, and there's a like, we talk constantly about continua and there really is a continuum even of oral cultures because some cultures, 
they have, they may be multilingual. One of the languages will be their language that is written, but another language is only amongst them, you know, this, this small group, you know, a subgroup that is not written and they do not want it written because it belongs to them. And they say, this is not a language that should be written. And I think that's, again, we talk about realities and perspectives. We only think of language as having value if it is written. Right. Uh, and 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 yet and, and also if it's only written in certain forms and in certain ways, you know, and that. So I think that's something else we want to keep in mind. And that kind of brings us to the whole idea of who are SLIFE and what is SLIFE, right? And why do we have this acronym? And you know, it's students with limited or interrupted formal education. Well, first thing is what ah, limited. Oh my God, what a horrible label. But we're not talking about the students. It's we're talking about the access that they had or did not have to a age appropriate education from our perspective. Like, you know, what is age appropriate? And also from their perspective, many, many times they said, I wish I could have, but you know, this is for the restraints. We didn't have any books, or there were 50 in our class, or you know, or or or, or I could only go when the weather is good because. You know, the roads would get washed out or the path would get washed out. So we have to look at it from their perspective and interrupted. We're not talking about one, two, three weeks or months. We're talking about years. And again, um, what they all share, they're very heterogeneous. They come from different languages, different cultures, different learning experience, but they have not had the opportunity to engage in age appropriate education, both from our view and their view. So, I mean, you can look at it both ways. So they're, they have a different reality. Um, and yeah, why are we labeling them? You know, why? Do, well, you know, labeling has good points. Namely, if we don't identify and disaggregate them from all other multilingual learners, we do them a disservice because they're not the same. They have additional needs. I mean, all language learners are learning a new language, whether it's second or foreign. And yes, they are learning a new culture, but SLIFE are doing even more. And that's why when I, um, they're taking extra steps, they have extra challenges. And that's why I like to talk about why it's important to identify them because these extra challenges, it's not just literacy, but compounded by the fact that they have not I uh, developed an identity as a student or as a learner. So when, you know, some might come in and they may have never been in school, so they don't know how to hold a pen or pencil or go about with a, you know, a, um, a computer. I'm talking about the key pen, a keyboard or whatever. Um, but others have had some education, but they still don't know the norms of behavior. And I'm not just talking about the tip of the iceberg ones like do we bow do we stand you know things like that but where do you put your name on the paper and what do you do with these pieces of paper that you've been given what do you do with a book with a textbook what is an index and you know a table of contents and all these things or um how you're given these pieces of paper and worksheets what do i do with it what am i supposed to do with a worksheet oh well this is in simplified english yes but I have not learned to do decontextualized tasks because we had we didn't have that kind of task. And that and on top of that, these tasks require specific ways of thinking. And going back to that idea that we have different realities and different ways of thinking, and these have been developed on our prior experiences. Well, the same way we develop ways of thinking that we need in our life and that we use. Well, if you haven't had age appropriate formal education as we understand it, you've de developed different cognitive pathways than we expect. And we, uh, what I call my work are academic ways of thinking. And you know, there are other ways of looking at them, but it, basically the things like compare, contrast, analyze, even things of so those listeners who might be familiar with Bloom's taxonomy and his pyramid or his steps. At the very bottom, they put things like matching and sorting, but hello, no, that's not, you know, no, um, automatic. I've been with SLIFE and they'll say, well, why should I match this to that? That makes no sense. That's an academic way of thinking and it's a decontextualized task. So whereas the other learners, they know how to do this. They may know not exactly the task or they may not know how to, 
maybe they haven't spent a lot of time doing analysis or maybe they haven't done a lot of doing this or that, but they understand what it means to be a learner and how to be an autonomous learner. And that means they know what it means to work with a textbook, work with notes, work with the, the lecture or the class materials where this life don't or haven't completely mastered it. So there's that extra piece. And it's closely, closely tied to literacy as we understand it. Because you can have literacy in the terms of decoding. And I've seen life do this. And, and teachers will tell you this all the time. Oh, they can cop, they know the alphabet. They can copy the words or they can memorize the list. That's not literacy as we understand it. They can even read the text aloud pretty well. But you, when we talk about literacy, we see this as an interactive pro process, the dialogue between the reader and the text. We, we want to do something with this. We, have to, we want to think about it. We want to answer questions about it. We want to extract information. And we want to exchange information that way. And that's very different from what SLIFE are used to. And I talk about a ways of learning continuum. You know, those who've never been in school, and then there's others that range along that. And even if you've been in school, maybe eight, nine, 10 years, whatever, but if you've never used literacy as an active process, then you're still slife. You know, you're still, you're falling in the middle. We need to give you extra support and not assume that you know how to be a learner, that you know what to do with what you're giving me. It's not just language and content. It is what we often refer to as formal schema, or I often like to refer to it as the hidden challenge. Because from our worldview, why would this be difficult? Well, I've made the language easier. I'm even giving it to you in your own language. You know, I've translated it. Why can't you do this? Again, looking at at these at the students through our lens rather than saying, wait, is there something intrinsic in that material. Is there something of the task? Is there a way of thinking that I'm expecting or assuming that they can do? If you teach elementary school, you know, kindergarten, first grade, even primary school, I mean, sorry, um, preschool, um, you're teaching the very, very basics of how to be a learner. And you build on that over the years. And by the time fourth, fifth, sixth grade, you know, you're, now you're not teaching the very basics, you're, you're, you're developing it. You're, you know, you're building on what they know. So when we get life, who are older, who are, you know, sixth grade, 10th grade adults, you know, multilingual teachers, ESL teachers, EFL, we're not trained. We don't realize this because we live in our world of formal education. We assume that they can do this. And we assume, oh, it's the language. Oh, they just don't understand. Or we assume it's literacy. And yes, literacy is part of it, but it's more that hidden aspect. I think this is the thing that you're adding to the podcast. I, di I didn't hear uh, Dr. Henry Marshall uh, mention. You talked about we as language specialists come work with SLIFE and we're like, wait, I put it in your home language. I'm, it, it's it's uh, text engineered for you. It has pictures, it has visuals, it's annotated. Why can't you get this, right? Mm. And then we start to realize, oh wait, their context, their background experience didn't provide them with this, mm. with to know what to do with a piece of paper. So, that, so can you tell us a little bit more about what contextualized and decontextualized task means? I can, but I want to take one. Can I take one step backwards? Yes. And you talked about pictures. We give them pictures and we give them diagrams and that. Well, part of um, part of becoming literate in the sense of, of, of being an active, um, and as an active process, it's also becoming, and I, I like to say this, a code breaker. Because pictures, if, if particularly if they're diagrams, clip art, you know, sketches, um, graphic organizers, those are abstract representations of the real world. And that means you understand the code. And one of my, Favorite examples is when I was I was in a math class for SLIFE, it was geared to SLIFE, and they were supposed to be working on um, uh, understanding measurements. So think to yourself, you know, you probably have Amazon deliveries and you're, or any delivery, you have boxes. We all have real boxes, right? Then you take a photo of that box. That's pretty close looking at like that box. But then you get sort of a color representation. It's still okay. But think of a math textbook. 
those are just, you know, these little sketches with, you know, height, length, and numbers. It is completely abstract. And you're giving this to a slide who has not learned the code of abstract representations. And you might say to yourself, well, well that's just math. Well, let me give you another example. I'm in a different classroom and they are given, this is a, this is a commonly used textbook um, in, in the United States. And I'm, it doesn't, we're not, doesn't matter who made it, but it's got pictures and the students are supposed to talk and write about the pictures. And just imagine, I'm not even gonna use that textbook because I don't wanna get, have it identified, but um, here's another one where there's a picture of a classroom and somebody walking into the classroom and the, student, the teacher greets them and they're supposed to talk about that, you know, with the little bubbles. And um, the, the students are like, what's a, what is this? What, yeah, exactly, what is this? And not only that, but why is this a classroom? This doesn't look like where I am. Uh, and who's that person? I don't know that person. And it, and this and the person will end, and the again top down approach. What we think learners need, what we think is relevant to them, but it's decontextualized. Going to that point because it's not part of their lives. Right. So when we talk about decontextualized tasks, it's things like everything you can imagine from you know answering true false questions about something they read. It can be multiple choice. It can be fill in the blank. It can be doing a, a um, um, uh, what do you call it? A um, filling out a um, table based on things from the text, right? All of these are decontextualized and we can go on and on and on. And why are they decontextualized? Because teacher will tell you, I've tried to make it so relevant. We've talked about the text. We try to talk about their experience, you know, and we go, you know, they go on and on. But the, the starting point is that top down. It's the text, it's the curriculum, it's the materials, not their lives. And they're gonna say, well, I don't know that person. Why should I, why should I answer questions? I don't know who, who those children are, or I don't know, I don't take the bus at eight o'clock. We don't have buses where we live or, you know, or, or wait a minute, I, you know, there's no buses in Tampa that I'm near me or whatever it is, you know, it's, are there no trains? <laughs> but it doesn't matter. The point is, um, when material um, material writers, they try to be relevant, but they're not starting where the student is at. Right. They're starting from a different reality, the learning paradigm of formal education. Right. And I'm not criticizing formal, you know, textbook writers. I don't want to do that because they provide a lot of valuable materials. But what we need to do when we're working with SLIFE, we kind of had to provide a bridge or ramp into this decontextualized work because that's also you know, uh, um, it's abstracting yourself into another world. You know, this is a different world, a different way of thinking that I can read and think and discuss and analyze something that's not part of my world directly. And that's, an, and all of these are academic ways of thinking. And one of my favorite examples um, is true false. Um, I was recently um, doing a workshop and um, we were talking about an actual task that they had, they, that was from their textbook and they had to read the, the textbook and then the students had to ask, you know, answer questions. And the question, and the, the teacher said, they just can't do it. We've tried, you know, as we just said, they tried translating it, they tried doing different things, they had interpreters and this. And I said, well, you gotta take it from their perspective. They don't know anybody in that text, in that little short text, there's not even, there's nobody there, that's not their lives. And on top of that, they're new to literacy. And their attitude is, why should I read something that's not true? Think about that for a minute. That is an academic way of thinking, right? That we can set, we can compartmentalize things like that. And why should you do that? And for them, often the written word is something, I don't want to say sacred, but it's something extremely important and valuable and has a significance, whereas for us, it's a tool. And that's a different, again, talking about different realities. What is the written word? Can I ask you about uh, the concept of ways of thinking, like ac academic ways of thinking, right? I know that when you talked about comparing, analyzing, identifying, right, I, I could see that. But what about are, are slave students in their contextualized experiences? Do they not compare? Do they not? Can you tell me more about that? Well, okay. So 
when we talk about most this life have most of their learning experience if not all have been in what we call informal ways of learning yes. and this is learning that takes place in the socio-cultural environment or the context of the family um of the the neighborhood of their their group you know it's like this and it's learning that's very concrete you learn what you need to learn at the time you don't go to agricultural school to learn to work the fields Okay, you don't go to cooking school, to, to culinary art school to learn to cook. It's a mentor-mentee approach where you, you, you observe, you imitate, you get feedback, primarily nonverbal feedback, right? And then you do it again and you do it again until you've mastered it. And that is, and then you know that you are competent when now you're ready to either do it on your own or mentor somebody else or others. So it's, it's, it's very implicit learning, right? You do it because that's the way it's done and you see the result is not correct. Or, you know, and I'm not saying that they never compare and contrast, but it's not necessarily explicit. We don't eat this mushroom because it causes, you know, I don't know, sickness, but, but we don't look at the chemistry of it. Okay. Um, or we don't explain, you know, we are an off. So it's, it's a whole different type of learning. When we do things in a formal education, um, first of all, I keep going back to it, it's, it's, it is text-based learning. I don't care if it's digital, I don't care if there's YouTube or other things, you know, or movies, it's still text-based, right? Um, and it still assumes that you compartmentalize the world in academic ways of things, which really the work, I stand here on um, um, Flynn and Flynn's work, and I can't think of his first name, of course. Um, he's an American who worked for many psychologists, worked for many, 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 many years in New Zealand, just recently passed away. And he, he's well known for the what's called the Flynn effect. And anyone who studied economics or anything like that will be familiar, or IQ, work on IQ, like why have we suddenly become so much more intelligent than our ancestors 100 years ago? Well, we haven't, but our world has become, um, our world has become more technologically advanced and more, um, he calls it scientific principles, we call them academic ways of thinking that this is permeates everything now. And every all these academic ways of thinking are based on these commonalities that have been established by logic, reasoning, science. So for example, um, when we classify things, and there's another wonderful book old called Women, Fire and Other Dangerous Things by George Lakoff. Oh, you know, it's written the summit at 70, I think he revised it later on. But the idea is, you will go to, a, I think he, it was an African language, and their idea of classifying thing was women, fire, and other dangerous things formed one category, okay? Now, think about how we classify things. And my classic example is, you know, if I ask you, what do rabbits and dogs have in common? And, you know, the, you know, the answer is, well, they have fur, they have, you know, they have four legs, they have, you know, two ears, blah, blah, blah. And somebody usually comes up with, well, they're mammals. Any of those answers, you know, follow academic ways of thinking in terms of classification, right? If your life, you think functionally, well, you need, you use a dog to hunt a rabbit, right? Sometimes they also say you eat both rabbits and dogs, but that, you know, cause gas. Oh no. <laughs> but and that's how they look at the world. They look at it very, very functionally. And Luria um, talks about that a lot in his work. And he did that in his former Soviet Union and using his terminology among, and this is his terminology, illiterate peasants. Um, and he did his work, I, yes, because, well, you have to think it was, it was in, the, in the 30s or whatever and that. So, um, and it, how they were, they were not able to grasp why you would do certain things because it did not make sense from their way of looking at reality and interpreting the world and this happens very often with this happens all the time with life and you know we do things like we ask them in um, education and i'm going to ask you this is your homework and the next week look at how many times in some way you ask somebody to define something you don't necessarily say what is x but if you look at books or you look at our conversations, right? that's the most commonly asked question in one form or another. And there are many, many manifestations of that form. And you're not asking, you know, like it, like we do in a traditional ESL, what is this? This is a pen. We don't, that's not what we're talking about. It's like, 
what are the identifiable characteristics? Like I just gave the example of the dogs and the um, and the rabbits. But you know, if I ask you, like in a class, what is a what is a tree? I'm expecting that you're going to say things like, oh, it has you know a trunk and it has um, uh, branches and blah 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 blah. Where for a slice, you're going to say, well, of course you know what a tree is. Look out the window. And now your action, your you know the reaction a lot of times of listeners or participants in worship is, well, I don't teach science. What's what are we talking about? What's important about this? Uh-uh. Let me ask you the question: literature. Tell me about literature. What do we do in literature? We have poetry. We have drama. We have you know we have biography. On and on and on and on. And we have true. You know, we have fiction, you, uh, you know, you can go on and on. We do this in everything in our lives. And if you look at our educational system, um, remember I talked about learning in informal ways. You learn what you need when you, you need to, and you le learn what's needed. It doesn't matter, right? It's what's needed. Well, we divide knowledge into, into what do I call it? Um, Categories? No, well, um, subject areas, subject areas, right? Math, science, history, language, on and on and on. We divide it up and we do talk about cross-disciplinary and everything, but we still silo knowledge. We so silo knowledge. Um, and that can be very difficult for them. Why are we siloing knowledge, right? And, and if you think about that, why do we do this? Well, because that's our reality and that's our world. And we don't just do it in school. It, and that goes back to the Flynn effect. That's our world. You know, this, this technological scientific way, as he puts it, of thinking. And, and it's not, and again, remember when I talked about, you can, you can learn to look at uh, optical illusion in a different way. Our life can do that. They can learn our world if we provide them the adequate support and tools, rather than saying, you know, shrugging our shoulders and say, ah, I don't even know where to start. I don't know what to do with them. So, so you really talked about the functionality. Now I, now it makes sense. Like, like we think in economic ways and it's not functional the way we think. Uh, but for slave students, the way they think is through, is this serving a function in my community? Is this serving a function in my life? Right? So and, I think, go ahead. No, I was going to say, but it's also not, it's not just the function, but how things relate to each other. You have to have a relationship, like, like you have to have, a, you have to, if you have a rabbit you have and a dog, well, there has to be a relationship. You use something for something else. Right, right. And, you know, and, and, Honestly, I want to also say with that example, I've had people um, whose spouses or they themselves have been hunters and they'll, their reaction will be that they'll say they may, oh, you know, we use, a, we use a dog to hunt rabbits, right? But as soon as I talk about the other perspective, they'll, not, they'll say, oh, yeah, of course, of course, that's what you meant. So because they can see both worlds and they, but life have to be brought and helped to see both worlds. Well, there's so also a so let's talk about that. Should we? I want to get to the four essential guidelines to help life. Is that what you're going to lead us to? I remember. I think we started off with you know question your own assumptions. I think I pretty much covered that. Yes. And did. the second one was um, okay. Foster two-way communication. Okay. Which means um, listen to your students. Remember, you want to make things. They come from that world of informal ways of learning and a concrete real world, real, real world learning. So let's listen. Let's not stop with that top-down approach where we think what will be relevant to them, but let's listen to what they have to say. And let's, that means we have to have a relationship with them. We have to know who they are. And that's something teachers generally think they do and, and that they, and many, especially in the language world do strive, but we spend a lot of time talking about what our expectation, what our world of education is, but let's, you know, we sometimes will need an informant and that's really important when it happens in an informant. It can be somebody who speaks English better, who's been here longer. It can be somebody, a cultural liaison. Let's find out more about their world. What are their lives? And, and this is when they can't speak or the language as well, or we don't know their language. Um, but when we they do know more, they can share a lot. And one thing that there's a couple things that you can always start with is food and families. But you have to be careful these days also with family because a lot of our students have gone 
Um, and I just was at a workshop um, with, with trauma. And one of the things that um, they had these, this, they were, these, some of these teachers were telling me about some of the horrible things that their students and how many they had lost family members. They, so family was something that had, at least right now, was a little bit taboo unless it came from them. But food is quite neutral. So, I mean, uh, and that's, but again, knowing what might you know, trigger something is, will work if you have a relationship with your students and you know their background. And as long as you let them decide, not decide, but kind of steer what your program is, what your ideas are. And of course you have to go, you have to teach your curriculum. There's no question, but you have to, pro, you're providing them a ramp by starting with what is relevant with that, to them and starting where, where they are at. Cause you don't, you can't teach everything the they way they would like to learn you can't do everything orally you can't do you know do everything pragmatically and real because you want them to see not only in our formal educational system but in our society you know and and yet at the same time you want to honor and respect what they're bringing so you're using an assets-based approach to bring them into our ways of learning by listening and fostering not just we tell them but we're listening to them um so that would be one principle and i already talked i think about explicitly i touched on teaching students um school tasks and academic ways of thinking and the way we do that um we start out again going back to something that's out of their world and they can use any language it might be the language they've already mastered if it's german if it's english if it's spanish whatever language you're teaching you know that um you're teaching them in um or it can be their own languages their own dialect and here's something that um really um i want to stop for a minute because i have seen too often the teachers think when i talk about familiar language they immediately think of translation well, let me let me give them google translate for example and assuming that exists in their language. But aside from that, giving them Google Translate is one small tool or one aspect. We want them, translation is not everything. Just like you can't take one student and say, translate everything. That's not what we're talking about. You're, what we're talking about, I'm talking about, is use, leverage all your, your whole linguistic repertoire whatever language, languages, dialects you speak, to engage, to speak, to talk about the tasks that you're learning to do. And you know, you're constantly building in new language and new sentence patterns of the language you're teaching, let's say English. But, and you're not using, that way you're not using translation as one aspect becomes a crutch. You're using, that's one piece of it. You know, it's, it's like, if I'm going to, um, if I have a very abstract concept or a very difficult concept, maybe that, that that's the time to do some translation if it's accurate, yes. But when I really want you to engage in the task, let's say we're doing a whole thing on food and drink, you know, sometimes things can't really be translated because we don't have that food and drink. So let them use that language and then find the pictures, the photos or bring it in and then we discuss it and we come up, oh, you mean sweet, you mean salty, you mean, uh, and how do we say this tastes good, doesn't taste good? So, and then you're bringing in the English. And then you're also scaffolding academic ways of thinking. So maybe you'll do something like a survey. And you know, uh, does it taste good? Does it taste sour? Does it taste sweet? Does it taste salty? You can make a little chart, survey chart. It doesn't just have to be yes and no. It depends what kind of survey you want to do when you yes, no, smileys, yeah, not, you know, whatever. Or you can have longer sentences and then you set up a little table and get the responses and you see what everybody's done. And now they and they they can also copy the table. They can make their own responses and they can write little sentences about it. And what have you done? You've taught them this decontextualized task, namely um, setting up a survey, getting response and doing something with the data, like a table, like a bar graph, like a circular pie. So you're transitioning them into academic ways of thinking, but you're using familiar language. Remember they're interacting in English, in their languages, and, you know, a little bit of translating were necessary and the content is familiar. It's their content. And you're introducing your content because you're part of that. This is what I eat for breakfast. This is my fruit or whatever, you know, and not too much. Keep it simple. Initially build. Right, right. So you're saying 
just make it relatable to them in the beginning, add the content throughout and get them to be able to, to communicate and engage from yeah. what they know. So, um, but just see, like with the fruit, like I would bring in a couple of my my favorite fruits. So they're they're learning the language from me, but they're talking. They're bringing. They're also bringing in their language because they may not know. They may think, oh, I like a good example is one time I I was uh, working with some students and I brought in um, the teacher, not me, brought in pineapple, and I would love pineapple. But what if I ask you how does pineapple taste? Well, just get a couple of adjectives or one adjective. It's sweet, but tart as well. It's tangy. Uh, okay. it, has, it has almost like a citrusy uh, crispness to it. So, but you, I think you like it, right? I love it. It's yummy. So the couple of students, like, they literally spit it out saying, this is awful. And we were so taken aback because we tasted the same pineapple. And our reactions other students, other's life, and the teacher and me were your reactions. But it was, so it's interesting. So think about the vocabulary. You know, they didn't, they didn't know the word nasty or they, you know, or disgusting or whatever, but you can, you can bring it in and say, look, Mohammed, I'm, I'm making up that name. That was not his name. Mohammed or uh, Diana, you know, they thought it was, they, look, and they knew the faces, they saw them. So they learned the vocabulary in context. Yeah, it's all in context. I think what you're saying is like we because they don't come, they come with a different context. So we have to provide the context for them to be able to understand and engage with the content. Yeah. And from their perspective, remember, like looking at that optical illusion from a little bit differently, a different reality. And that takes a lot of work, which actually brings me, you know, I gave you one example of something that I found very inspiring. But um, so there was a just to give you an example, I've talked about this before, is that you know, we talk a lot about in science, again, I know it's, well, no, here's a better example. So it was Christmas, before Christmas, and um, you, know, you get a lot of flyers. You go to all the different stores, I put them in your mailbox, everybody has flyers. And and, we, and I was in an area where there's a lot of, you know, Walmart is very common, very popular, and uh, the dollar store. And so we thought this would be, a, you know, we had done, there had been some work that had been done in stores and what stores they prefer and this and where they go shopping. So, so the idea was, okay, let's talk about what you buy for Christmas, right? Or what you want for Christmas. And there was like complete blank. Now they were all Christian. I want to add that. That isn't, that's, they were all Christian. Okay. I forgot to put that in there. And that's why that was another reason, you know, we wouldn't have done it had there been other really, but they were all Christian, but they're from a collectivistic background and a collectivistic background with people who do not have a lot of money. So what you do is you send money to people back home if you have anything extra. You don't buy gifts. You don't buy gifts for birthdays. You don't buy them for Christmas. You, you, you might host a celebration with food and drink, but you don't buy gifts on holidays. And that was very eye-opening. It's all about their experience, their context, right? It, their, their lived experience are the lens through which they see the world. And our lived experiences are the way we shape instruction. And sometimes mm -hmm. those are two mismatches. So then how do we ever teach content curriculum that we have to? Well, we can, because what we're doing is you know, for example, if you start, I, I mean, I'm just going back to the food as an example. You can do so much. I mean, we, we, if we had like another hour, I could talk about all the different projects, which I know is the um, other example I, um, of the projects that you can do with food. So you start off with something, as I said, so very simple as a survey, but then you can talk, and you, they bring in their own food, and then you can start talking about recipes, decontextualized, completely decontextualized. Why? Think about how you learn how to cook in a informal way of learning versus what is a cookbook? I don't care if it's digital. I mean, I Google all the time, you know, recipes and that. I don't even use a, a print version unless I print it out anymore. But it uh, the idea of a recipe is that anybody can follow it and get more or less the same results, right? Compl there's no, no um, context. 
I mean, I know people in blogs write all about it, but there's no real content. I'm not standing next to you cooking for my family tomorrow. But think of what you can do in teaching the recipe. It's their food. They learn how to think academically because it has to be a certain order. And you have to learn how to measure. And you have to measure very precisely. I mean, you can say a pinch of salt, but you can't you just say, you know, a handful. You want to make a recipe so others, you know, is your hand bigger than my hand? And you know, on and on. And then you can bring in, so you're talking about the, the idea of order. Yeah. You're talking about measurements. And then you can learn conversions. Now, maybe if they do know the, something about the metric system, you can turn it to our system, the U.S. system, which is not metric. Or you can also do things, okay, we have a class of 10 students. And if you're used to making this for 25, how would you adjust this? Or we're going to have an, a, a, a party at the end of the, this, the, the term. How would we change this? Conversion, math, right? Real context. Or then you could say, well, if I'm making this and I leave out the yeast, let's say we're doing bread, what would happen? Or I leave out the sugar, I leave out the soap. And then you're gonna start teaching chemistry. So you're gonna do so many things that are academically related, they're related to content, but you're doing it in something that's real to the end, reading and writing, and again, you know, all, and language. Right. So what I hear you saying is don't start with the content, don't start with reading and writing, start them with something they're familiar with where they can engage. Like, let's bring the food in together, let's try it out together, and then let's move to something decontextualized as a recipe. Let's move to a menu, Right. So I and then this is where you bring the reading and writing in. So it is possible. Well, even before that. So let's say they come up with adjectives. Right. And then you could do sorting like by letters, like which are the A's and the B's. And this, it depends where they are, you know, in terms of the reading. And writing. Or you could also do, um, you know, have them categorize under salty and, you know, whatever. So and then they're reading because what you want to do is you want to combine the reading and the oral, the writing and the oral, and then they would also be practicing when they're when they're coming up with, when they have the questions in that. Um, they're practicing. Um, you might do it uh, chorally because and because you also have to do um, eye training, right? So you might be pointing, or they might be pointing, and then reading it back because you what you what you want to work on is reading as a process, so that they just don't memorize, and then you take the words out of context. And I talk about that in my book and they can read it as long as it's in the right list, but then it's moved or you change a letter and they don't recognize it. Or they start guessing they know the first letter, maybe the first two. No, they need to understand and you're using, but you're introducing literacy training, literacy skills right from the beginning. And even if they have them, you're reinforcing them. Right. You're not separating them. Right. I think the last five minutes was just worth listening to the first 50 minutes of this because right? I just made it really clear because I hear teachers like okay I get this theory I get this but like what does that look like in a course right and so you just made that would you please would you please briefly talk about project-based learning I think you kind of did already in that example right? I think I did with the food but um yes. I can't emphasize enough how important projects are in mouth and, and or with it, basically working with SLIFE. Um, I think Helene talked a lot about Mel, but in general, working with SLIFE is so important. And I wanna start off, I always like to ask people to think about the nesting dolls, Matryoshka dolls. You know, you take, you have a little one and then you have another one, another one, and then you get the big doll. And when you're working with SLIFE, and a lot of times teachers tell me, how can I possibly do a project with SLIFE? It's like, that's natural, you can, but you have to think small. You know, there's a saying, keep it simple, sweetie. Start small, start very small, start very simple. Build routine, make it recursive. They're learning to be learners. And I mentioned, you know, earlier about having a survey. Do you like, is it good? Is it not good? Has, you know, you can, and you keep building. And there's so much you can do with projects. And um, in um, Breaking New Ground, co-authored with Helene, the 2011 book, we talk a lot about projects. And a lot of my articles, and also uh, I have chapters in um, two different books, um, Preparing the Way, um, fourth edition just came out, a new one, Rooted in Tesaw, um, talks about projects, um, which is coming out. Both of those are with Kendall Hunt. Um, the others are with um, University of Michigan Press and that. But I talk about them because, with projects, you have 
no teacher has ever had a homogeneous group in terms of ability. Some will be able to speak better, some will be able to write better, and on and on and on. So with a project, there's something for everyone. And remember, we're talking about KISS, keep it simple, sweetie, and building those dolls, yes? Some, there is always something for someone to do. And it really also kind of, it, it builds on their strength because you're incorporating a lot of oral, but connected, connected closely with the written. It's immediately relevant because we start with something from them and then we build to the curriculum and we build in the academic ways of thinking. Um, it is also um, interdisciplinary. And remember, we, we tend to you know, silo our thinking, but here's an opportunity. We're not just focused on language. You're not just focused on this. It's sort of like a lot of what they call in your CLIL, you know, content-based language instruction. I, I probably forgot part of it. We have content-based instruction too, but this is really integrates it so well with the language and with the literacy aspect and with the academic ways of thinking. And um, I can't say enough about this because the other part that people don't realize many times is it's very tangible. You know, they see this project and they see what they've done and they've created and they can share it. And these little projects build into bigger ones. So you can start with these little ones Next thing you know, that your little uh, survey with books and, or I'm sorry, with um, food or whatever and taste becomes booklets of recipes. And then they share this. It's, they share this with the family, with other cl classes. They, you know, you can share. When you think about what multi-generational, what you can do with it, then they share this and they bring home what they've been doing. Um, and, I, and this multi-generational is really important because formal education focuses on individuals, individual responsibility and the individual. And most of our life come, if not all, come from cultures or subcultures that are collectivistic, where the emphasis is on the group, learning together, sharing together, being together. And their attitude is why alone when, when we can do it together, which is not what formal education is all about. You know, you have, even though we have group work and cooperative learning, push comes to shove, you know, your grades are what, you know, you did it. But when you work on projects, then they can, and they do involve their families. And even if they do a lot of work um, in class together, they still have something they're individually responsible for, and then they go home and they share, or they even now digitally, they send it, you know, or pieces of it to other members. And, they, and that makes it a collective group effort that they're very proud of. And, you know, remember, they're building this identity of learner if they're farther to the, you know, having not been, um, uh, not being literate, to see their words, their thoughts, their ideas in print. Okay, so, so they end up with this final project that they can share with their everyone in their group, their family, their friends, their neighbors. And it's for the first time, perhaps, for many of them to see something they've created, a book or a page and a booklet, booklet, and they see their thoughts, their words, their ideas in print in a formal form. And it means so much and it forms their identity, both as a learner, as becoming an, you know, active in the literacy process, so to speak. And it, it, it is inspiring when you, for them and for us as teachers to see that, to see that journey that they've made. Right, right. And that it, they continue to make. Right. It, it celebrates them and for who they are. Mm -hmm. right. And, what they're and it's all, exactly. And, you know, we're not, we're not taking away from the curriculum. We're not taking away. We're not taking time away. We're giving them extra scaffolding. And, and honestly, it's something that always, always comes up when working with teachers is the time constraints. Right, right. And that's a real issue in formal education. Right. Because yeah. that's, again, you know, bum, 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 time plan. I think you have really helped me understand this one concept that when we plan for a life, we have to plan in a different way. And a different pace. Yes. yes. And you really, you, you really helped us see the project-based uh, form of instruction and making a collectivist really, really helps. And it, really, you can layer all the literacy throughout project-based learning. 
So. And, both, and I want to emphasize both collectivism, you know, the idea of collectivist, but also individual responsibility, right. because we're trying to, you know, we're getting them into formal education. So when they're working together, there's still something that each one is responsible for. So they might, if we're, you know, like the, the survey, if they're writing a couple of sentences about the survey, or even writing down words individually to the point where they write their own, you know, together, working together, but at some point they write their own page. It might be a few sentences, it might be a few words, it might be the entire recipe. I think I could go another hour, but I don't want... So good. This is so... I could certainly go for hours. This is something very near and dear to my heart. Yes, of course. I mean, it just comes out that way. And your expertise comes out that way. Let's, but we do have to end. Let's start with this. <laughs> I end with, um, by the way, the dolls thing you just talked about, like minutes ago, was just really mm -hmm. helpful to see, like, visually helping us see that you start with a small doll, and you go to the next one, and you go to the next one, and you go to the next one. But they're all connected dolls, so it's helpful. I end my podcast with this way. The red light uh, is something that you ask teachers to stop doing. The yellow light is asking something for asking them to start doing something. And then a green light is asking them to keep doing something. So it's stop, start, keep doing. Well, would you, you can talk about those red lights, yellow lights and green lights. Red light, stop giving out worksheets, stop giving them text, stop translating, over translating. Start with the students know your students yellow light keep caring and trying to learn more about ways to reach your students to address their needs in a culturally sensitive sustaining way think about see them uh, and red light what are the red light don't look evaluate think about them as much as possible and as difficult as this is through our lens of formal education try and and I, I constantly work with it i have so many more anecdotes and students i could share stories about of how i keep having to question my own assumptions because remember assumptions um and even our expectations most of the time they're below the level of awareness and when something's not working or you see a blank stare or you see somebody's head on the table or you hear or you see discipline issues stop and think what might be the root of them is it me is it my material is it my paradigm of teaching and understanding the world i'm not saying it's going to be 100 percent. you know we're not we can never reach 100 percent of the students and maybe but more so often there are things that we can do if we go back to the green light say and think about what are the what ha, what what have other people so by going back to the green light, keep evaluating what, what works, what others have found that works, and why have they found it works? It's really important to understand why, because we don't want to just copy. Because if we just copy, don't understand the why, then we're not addressing our assumptions and understanding what, you know, the different paradigms or the worldviews or the different realities. Well, this conversation was just full of great insights. It's it, it parallels and it dovetails Dr. Helene Marshall's conversation so well. I'm hearing in a different way. The message is the same. I just needed to hear it in a different way. And thank you for providing that to listeners. Well, I can't thank you enough for inviting me because it's, it's wonderful that there are people like you who are interested and want to share uh, this with the wider world. Well, Especially today today's refugees, you know, and it's not, we have record numbers of refugees. In the world and we i say i've been saying this since 2015 and the numbers just go up well you are helping all those students by this podcast and your work so thank you're you there. so much before we recap this episode i have a favor and an invitation my favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes 
I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now, on to our recap. Just listening to this example of the food project was worth staying to the end. I can see now how we can weave in literacy, academic ways of thinking, and decontextualize tasks by starting with something students are familiar with. I also really appreciate the doll's metaphor that reminds us to start small and build out. Thank you for helping us see through the eyes of Slife, Dr. DeCapua. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.